listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. And if you are a regular listener, I'm sorry. No, I mean, I'm not sorry that you're a regular listener. I'm sorry that I haven't been regular myself. And I don't mean in that other way. I mean, I'm sorry that I haven't posted podcasts at a regular time interval for the last few weeks. Um, you know, I, I, I've never used this phrase before, but a podcast of our magnitude really needs to have a bunch of evergreen episodes tucked away so that if the life of the host goes crazy um, for a few weeks with, you know, family emergencies and, and, and other exigencies, um, you know, we, we can, we can soldier on and, 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 and be seamless and, and, and seem like a really regular program. I mean, can you imagine if like there was an episode of the Sopranos that just didn't post, gosh, am I dating myself? The Sopranos? Game of Thrones. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean, young people. I mean, Game of Thrones. Can you imagine if one week you went to HBO and Game of Thrones just wasn't there and they were like, yeah, the director, his mother got sick and he had to, he had to go take care of some stuff at her house. And so, yeah, sorry for, we'll get back at you next week. You can't because that wouldn't happen because that's, those people are professionals. So sorry about that. Um, gosh, while we're at the apologies. I mean, I'm sorry that there wasn't an episode last week. I'm sorry that there was an episode the week before, or at least according to the mail I got or the email I got, um, because that was the one where I did the Q&A where I answered the, the lovely 15-year-old's question. And uh, I knew when we posted it, it was, it was weak. I, I wasn't fully prepared to handle that question. I, 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 had, I didn't have my ducks in a row, and boy, I got hammered. People writing me saying, get a, get somebody who knows what they're talking about on there or like that was pathetic or, I mean, they weren't all that mean, but it was pretty clear that people saw me sort of flout, you know, flopping around like a fish on the shore. And uh, I'm sorry. I, you know, that's, that, it was a momentous question. It deserved a, a much better answer. So rather than just whine about it, I'm going to take another shot at it next week on the next Q&A. And uh, I'm going to do better. I've, I've, I've done some research. I've talked to some people. I, I think I've got a better answer. And so that's something you can look forward to. You know, if the world doesn't collapse between now and then, of course, which is sort of an inside joke if you were listening to that episode. This episode, today, right now, here, I think I, it, like, it's going to be interesting because I'm going to share with you my conversation with Mark Gober. And it's funny when you're in this kind of world, like people send me books all the time. Publicists send you books, people send books and say, hey, this might be something you'd be interested in. And somebody sent me this book, Mark Gober's book, The End of Upside Down Thinking. And it was about, you know, Mark Gober's contention that consciousness is not generated by the brain, but is rather processed by the brain, that consciousness is out there. It's a thing which felt to me like another form of supernaturalism and another kind of woo-woo. And yet 
it is a kind of woo I hear all the time these days. I mean, I was reading Michael Pollan's book about psychedelics and there are some people that are theories that that's what's happening when you're on LSD. You're tuning into like a higher consciousness. And uh, I was talking with Ryan Meeks, my buddy who's taken the the, the Christian church and, and it's sort of shifting it over to being more of a humanist church. And Ryan goes like, yeah, well, you know, I've thought about that consciousness thing. That might, that might be a thing. And and then I even say to John, like, like John, I got this crazy book in my in my queue. And he says, yeah, well, I've thought about that. So it's out there. So I decided like, okay, I got I to gotta read this book. I, and, and then after I read it, I thought, I got to talk to this guy. So oftentimes you'll find me on a show talking to somebody who it's like, kind of like old home week. And I'm like, oh, I agree with everything you're saying. He's like, yeah, I think you're amazing. Mark and I, he's a really nice guy. We do not agree. And uh, so, you know, you're about to hear a sort of a really friendly argument. Um, and I think you'll dig it. Or at least you'll dig half of it. I hope. Uh, my half, I should say. All right. So that's it. Here comes me and Mark Gober. Um, I'll catch you on the other side, at which point I will encourage you to contact me via bartcampola.org or uh, humanizemepodcast.com. And I will encourage you to support the show via Patreon um, and all that kind of thing. Oh, by the way, speaking of Ryan Meeks, I did a follow-up episode with Ryan Meeks that is available on Patreon. Um, it's kind of like Patreon-only content where he and I have this kind of I've thought a kind of a meandering but cool conversation about music um, and the and, and the role of music in making the most of our lives and the role of music in bringing people together and creating community and uh, all that. So if you're into that, you should go over to Patreon. It's, you know, you could become a Patreon member of our support team for a buck a month if you wanted to. Um, and we would love to have you. So there. But I'll see you on the other side. But here's me and Mark Gober. Dig it. So, Mark, it is nice to meet you. You as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Where are you sitting as I'm talking to you? What part of the world are you? I am in San Francisco, California. And that is where you live? That's where I live. And how long have you lived there? Been here for seven and a half years. Interesting. So like, where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And then I went to college at Princeton in New Jersey. And then I lived in New York and Boston and now here in San Francisco. When you first got out of Princeton, what field did you go into? You went into some like arcane, was it banking or something? Yeah, I worked in traditional investment banking. I worked at a firm called UBS. It's a large global investment bank. And I, I did traditional mergers and acquisitions, capital raising and restructuring. So, okay. So this book that you wrote um, and this whole consciousness, brain, science-y kind of, you know, stuff, it has a lot of implications. And so I'm wondering, like, did you grow up in a Presbyterian family or were you, were your parents like hyper science-y kind of people? Like what kind of, what was the spiritual dynamic of your home when you were growing up? It wasn't a big part of our lives growing up. My family is Jewish, but not very, we weren't very religious. And if anything, when I thought of religions growing up, I kind of dismissed them. 
So religion or spirituality, those things were not a big part of my life. Uh, science was a big part of my life. And I was, um, I was looking, about, looking at the world based on what I was learning in science class and, and my understanding of the universe, rather than relying on what I viewed to be old texts where I didn't know who wrote them or what to believe from them. So if anything, to me, spirituality in that whole realm was just absent from my life for a very long time. Right. And so you were a good materialist like me. Right. Right. So like I grew up in all of the, you know, when I was 15, I became this hyper evangelical Christian and my dad is a big evangelical Christian guy. So like I was in that world all the time. And so, you know, my world was always full of supernatural realities. Um, until much, much later. And, you know, I, I struggled with that stuff. And eventually I, I sort of exited faith and became a materialist, became just the kind of materialist that in your book, you're sort of like, these people, I, they, just, they just assume this. They just take this on faith. And I, I, I'm like, I'm that guy. Like, I'm the guy you're writing about. Um, and so... But, but so like I came from a kind of a very, you know, supernatural world into a, a materialist view. It seems like you grew up in a materialist framework and sort of took on faith what people told you about everything, including consciousness, which was it's something that your brain does. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I was very much a materialist and I thought, I didn't think to question consciousness. I thought it was already just known that consciousness comes from the brain and therefore when you die, then your consciousness is gone. So when you take that literally, it's difficult, if not impossible, to find meaning in life beyond just rationalizing. And that's just what I thought science pointed toward, that life was random and meaningless and when you die, it's over and that's it. So that's what I thought it was. Now, that's a little dismissive of us materialists here, because although we might not believe that there's any meaning to life, like any external meaning that, you know, sort of created life or that imposes meaning on life, like, you know, believe that meaning is something that you make within life. Like it's this ability that we've developed to make meaning. And so we're not meaning finders as much as we're meaning makers. Because like, presumably, even as a materialist, like you thought like, Winning the tennis championship was meaningful. Making a friend on the tennis team was meaningful. Like you found meaning in life. Well, so I struggle with that. Thinking back to my old mentality is that I would say, yeah, this is meaningful. And then I'd say, wait a second, why does it mean anything? Because in the end, we're not going to have memories anymore. We're not going to have feelings and emotions once our consciousness is gone. So I'm just rationalizing. And this was a struggle that I went back and forth on where I could try to find meaning or make meaning as an evolutionary mechanism, but ultimately I felt like I was rationalizing and I didn't know how to deal with that. Because if meaning wasn't permanent or eternal, it wasn't really meaningful. Like this means something to me now, but later on I'll get wiped clean. Yeah. And even the meaning it, I'm giving to it now, why, why am I giving it that meaning? Where does that come from beyond just kind of making it up? Is it intrinsically meaningful or am I just creating that meaning? That's what, how I would think. Which, you know, I'm sort of like making that up. That's the point that, of course, that's you and I don't care about each other. And then like we decide, hey, well, why don't we invest meaning in each other and decide, like, I'm just going to decide that you matter and I'll treat you like you matter. Oh man, that feels really good. And then when you call, it means something to me and like inventing meaning seems like a really good thing to do. Yeah, I guess it depends on how we define good. And that's where my head would have gone. Well, why is it good? Is it what makes something good? Is that just something that I made up or 
is there something deeper to it? I would have said, no, there isn't. And then, then why does it matter that it's good or not? Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Like, so like if you make it up almost by definition, it, then it was suspect. Yeah. I think I just was tending to question it yeah, because it seemed yeah. arbitrary. Okay. So like we're getting, I'm, I'm ahead of myself now because like, so I've got you, you go to Princeton, you become an investment banker, you do that for a minute. But at some point, one of two things, like is, does your career track or your, or your relationship track, do you feel like it was my career track that led me to change my way of thinking or did something change your way of thinking and then that changed your career track? It started for me in 2016. I heard a series of podcasts that exposed me to these topics of consciousness for the first time. And that led me to explore the research that I describe in my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. And it was that exposure to the research that really started to make me question my old worldview. And I got to the point where I finally saw enough scientific evidence that I was having a hard time rationalizing my old worldview in light of this new body. And then I researched even further and decided to write a book. So you're like a fresh convert here. Like you're 2016. Yeah. Okay. Because like I was an evangelist for a long time. And so, you know, you, you'd always, you know, the new converts were always, the, they were the most excited and thrilled and, you know, you could get them to do anything for Jesus, you know, because <laughs> they, were, they were just into it. Um, and I feel like sometimes when you're around new, like even when you get around deconverted people who are, who have just left faith. They're wild. Like, they're like, ah, oh, that's all they can talk about, you know, or, like, you know, a new convert to Alcoholics Anonymous or a lot of things. And so what was the podcast that you listened to that, 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 that was your first breadcrumb? The first one was a show called Extreme Health Radio. And I wasn't listening to it because I wanted to learn about consciousness or anything. I was just listening to learn about health. And there was a woman that came on the show. She was the next one in the queue named Laura Powers, who talked about her own psychic abilities and abilities to communicate with non-physical entities and things that were very paranormal, working with energy. I had never heard about anything like this before, and it, like someone speaking with a straight face. So at the end of that episode, Laura, I remember she said she has her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people that have had similar experiences. So I then decided to listen to that podcast and heard a, a bunch of accounts that made me just question things. And then I started to read books and look at scientific papers and the rest is history. But you're going to have to see, because like if I hear Laura Powers talking about her psychic healing ability or anything on, on, the, on the podcast, like I turn off that podcast and like go looking for something, go, go looking for Sam Harris or somebody. Right. I'm so not into that like alternative medicine, all that stuff, all that, you know, w w my friends call it woo woo. Right. And, and so, but you didn't, you didn't obviously like when Laura w power shows up, you didn't run for the exit. No, I didn't. I just kind of left it on. And when I heard her and other people talking about it, I was just trying to reason what was going on. Is this person lying? Is this person just delusional? Are they psychotic? What's, what's the deal? Is there some hint of truth to it? Why is this person saying this thing? And at first, I didn't know. I didn't know. I said, well, this person is making certain claims and statements. That's interesting. And in some of the, the interviews, I heard more of the scientific end of it. And that's when I got really interested is looking at the, some of the, the new scientific studies that are pointing in this direction. And like I said, I got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't rationally shoot down all the science that I was coming across. Okay. You know, people always talk about the word compelling, like the science wasn't, was compelling or it wasn't compelling. What was compelling to you? Like what science did you come across where you, cause like if, if I, 
I mean, I read the book, you know, and, and it's hard for me to stay with a book like yours because I fundamentally start out. And when somebody says, you know, we think there's a consciousness that sort of, you know, is over, is out there or somewhere that like isn't located in phys- the physical universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just immediately go like, yeah, bullshit. I don't believe that. And, and I'm probably like 90% of the people, right? Yeah. It really depends on who I talk to. It's so interesting to hear the the variety of reactions. Some people will say they, re- they read the book and it's like, duh, you're just saying what I've known forever. And other people have reactions more like yours, which is that, no, I don't, I just don't buy that. And so, so when I was reading your book, I kept looking for, I found lots of, I found lots of um, people giving testimonial evidence. What evidence did you find that consciousness predates matter and energy? Well, I think it is the confluence of, of different pieces of evidence that point in that direction. So if we start with just thinking about consciousness, what, what is it? It's this subjective inner experience that we all have. So anyone listening to this conversation has consciousness. So we know it's there. And what's known as the hard problem of consciousness is how is it that this consciousness arises? Because our body is physical, but our consciousness, like I can't touch it, but it's just, it's the subjective thing that's there. So this is known as the but Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. So like, you know, my, my, sister, my daughter has a dog. Does that dog have consciousness? The way I think about consciousness, and then we're kind of skipping ahead because we haven't talked about the evidence, but the way I think about it is that consciousness is fundamental and it is expressing itself through a variety of physical forms. And I do have a chapter in the book on animals, which suggests that they have some of these abilities as well. Yeah, no, I, I, and I wasn't trying to skip ahead. I was just like, when I, on some level, I think of consciousness have it, like, as being almost identical with self-consciousness. Like in order to be conscious, you have to be, you have to be able to differentiate between yourself and something else. Consciousness is this thing that nobody seems to be able to really give me a clean definition of. Yeah, I agree. It's a, tip, it's a difficult one. But when I say, for example, I am speaking to you right now, what do I mean by I? What is that? That's what I mean by consciousness. Okay, so uh, which I would say is a sense of self. And, and, and also a sense that like when I woke up this morning, I was like, I am here. Like I woke up in the same bed that I went to sleep in. You know, I guess theoretically, like if my brain worked a different way, you know, every time I fell asleep, I would wake up and I'd be like, whoa, this is all new. But like, I have a memory of the self I was last night that I connect with the self I am now. And I go like, oh, I have a continuous self. Yeah. I mean, I I might say it's even more general than that. It's the fact that you have an awareness to even evaluate whether it's the same self as before. It's that subjective awareness that exists. It's like the context for all of the experience that you have. That's what I mean by consciousness. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So now, okay. And, 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 and it feels a little bit like the Supreme Court definition of uh, pornography. Um, <laughs> no, when you, you see know. it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> um, so again, take me back to the evidence where you go like, your sense is that there is, con- that consciousness comes before matter and energy rather than the t- typical materialist thing that says consciousness arises out of your brain activity. Right, right. So 
before I get to the evidence, I just want to establish for your listeners that there is this big question about the fact that we have consciousness and we know the brain is related to it, but Science, science Magazine, for example, has said that the number two question that remains in all of science is how is it that this physical body creates this non-physical awareness or consciousness that we have? So it is a big question in science. It's not understood how this happens, and there are theories for how it might happen. And of course, what I argue is, is that consciousness doesn't come from the brain, and that's why there are a number of phenomena that occur, such as, and this is getting to the evidence, the book is divided into two different segments for those who have not read it. One is the evidence for what we might call psychic phenomena, where consciousness does not seem to be localized to the brain or the body. And another category where consciousness seems to exist when the body is not functioning. Both of which point toward this idea of a consciousness that is not just confined to our brain. And then when I look at all the evidence together, it might make more sense to say that consciousness is fundamental rather than a product of matter. So just conceptually, that's where we're headed. Now, in terms of the evidence that I have found compelling, I, I chronicle a lot of it in the book, but we can talk about, because I know you're, you sound to be like a very, you want to have non-anecdotal evidence, which I can totally understand. Um, I think anecdotal evidence can be powerful in, in large quantities, but you can't prove that every single one's right because it's not controlled. There was a study that came out in 2018 in the American Psychologist Journal, which is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association. So a very mainstream journal. And Dr. Etzel Cardenia at Lund University looked at the accumulated evidence over many decades by many experimenters for the psychic phenomena that I discuss in the book, whether it's telepathy, like mind-to-mind -mind communication, or precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens remote viewing, which is perceiving something at a distance without being there physically, psychokinesis, which is affecting the physical world with the mind. He showed in his paper the, the statistical evidence that these things seem to be happening beyond chance when we look at the accumulated controlled studies for it. And this was a mainstream publication that looked at what he had done. And I've actually spoken with them. They said, he said they really put him through the ringer before they accepted the article, but they concluded that the statistics and that the methodologies were sufficient to be published in a mainstream journal. Right. And, and yet when I go to USC or Harvard or Princeton, like everybody didn't go like, did you see that article? And everybody doesn't jump on that bandwagon and go like, Hey, pretty sure we got something here. I mean, it seems like he's an outlier. Well, many of these studies have been out there for a long time. And the fact that now a mainstream journal is accepting the accumulated statistics, I think it's, it's a pretty big deal. And I, I agree with you. We don't jump up and down when we see a study. But over time, it's the accumulation of studies like this that start to shift paradigms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so, and, and like, you're not a scientist. You're just a guy, a smart guy, re looking around, reading the stuff and going like, you know what, this is compelling to me. And so I'm going to try to write it up in a way that a non-scientist can sort of understand what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to make it accessible and people can draw their own conclusions. But you've drawn a pretty hard conclusion for yourself, right? Does this feel like a fact to you now? Like, do you feel like, yeah, I, I think consciousness is out there? For me, based on the evidence I've seen, I'm more swayed in that direction than any other direction. I personally have a hard time coming up with an alternative perspective, but I guess you could say anything that's anecdotal where it's, even if doctors are reporting it, you could just throw those out. Right? Especially if, especially if you're a guy who used to give those anecdotes, 
Like I sincerely looked people in the eye and said, I had this experience in which I felt like God clearly spoke to me. And you go like, were you lying? And I go like, no, I, I wish I felt God was speaking to me, right? I, I worked myself up into that state or I was surrounded by a peer group that made that seem authentic or like I had like, so like my spiritual experiences were legit, bro. I wasn't making them up. And you go like, but you don't think any of them were anything other than something that you were creating in your own brain. And I go like, that's right. That's right. So, you know, anecdotal evidence. What if the people are telling the truth? I go like, I don't care if they're telling the truth. That, that, th them telling the truth doesn't tell me if that really happened. Because I believe I was telling the truth and I don't think Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, what about things like the chapter on children who have memories of a previous life allegedly and they have birthmarks and physical deformities that align with it and you know, the university of virginia spent 50 years and over 2500 cases looking at this and these are little kids that are saying things that the researchers sometimes can validate with historical or medical records that they can't figure out how the child could have just made up right so then i think about like the organ transplant people right okay you get an organ from somebody else and all of a sudden like you like what they like or you remember you have you you like have a memory of them and something like that right mm -hmm. I, I mean i remember reading malcolm gladwell's book blink i don't know if you ever yes did you ever and, and talked about the adaptive unconsciousness and and there were all these studies in which the the it wasn't the thought that sent the the the, the sent the signal to the gut to to do something the eye had a, had a direct line to the gut and the thing happens in the gut first and then would go to the brain to rationalize it, you know? And so I don't think we're rational beings. I think we're rationalizing beings. I think we are affected by all sorts, all sorts of parts of our body, not just our brain. So when you tell me about those children, I can't explain it to you yet, but like, but like you go like, but Bart, you're irrationally committed to the idea that every thought in that person's identity or every 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 aspect of that person's identity has a physical location in their body and i'm like yeah yeah i totally am right and that's a position that someone can take and many people certainly do um, right what about cases like i'm just really curious like some of the near-death experience cases that they're known as prospective cardiac arrest cases where the person is in cardiac arrest and they're interviewed afterwards but during the time of cardiac arrest that's chosen because we know that blood flow stops flowing to the brain uh, so the brain is is off or it's as off as we can know it to be. And yet in some cases, people are describing this out-of-body experience from a vantage point outside of themselves that is later verified as being accurate by those in the room. And it's during a time when the brain shouldn't have been functional. What is, I'm just curious, what is your perspective on on studies like that? And again, I, this is purely speculative. So, right, right. you know, but the fact that their brain shuts down, obviously the living tissue of their body, their senses, their heart, their eyes, like all that tissue didn't become inoperable. It ended up being turned on, turned back onable. And you see like, just because their brain function ceased for a minute doesn't mean that their body stopped taking in information. The donut machine stops working at a certain point, but the, the dough keeps getting poured in and stuff like that. And then they turn the donut machine back on and then it processes the backed up dough. And you're like, but what about the verifiable? It, it was it was in a different space than in their body. And I'm like, yeah, I, I got no clue on that one. But what I'm saying is, is that whether it was it was their imagination 
doing some telemetry and sort of like coming up with a perspective that makes sense. And you're like, oh my God, you sound like a, you sound like a, a, a man of deep faith going like, I'm sure that in the end, God can explain it. And I go like, I'm sure that in the end, science can explain it. Like, I know I sound like that because that's exactly the truth. I think there's a physical explanation for that experience. Like that somewhere in their brain, in their body tissue, you know, in the transmitted, in, in like the subconscious experiences that have been transmitted to them throughout culture, uh, throughout their own experience up to that point, like that there was enough information laid in there that it could be, oh, what's the word? It could be sort of integrated or, or it could, you know, you could pick and choose from among it and create the Lego piece of that idea that you go like, that's amazing. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I read this book a few years ago by a mathematician called the improbability principle, which was all about how like miracles in, in a world where there's many things are happening as are happening in our universe at all the time that like incredibly improbable things have to happen all the time. And that what is really remarkable is that we notice when that person gets the telemetry right and you go like, you couldn't have known that if you weren't, if, if, like, how could they have known that? You know, but we don't keep a list of all the times when somebody says, you know what, I think I was a dog on Jupiter. And you go, like, actually, you, the telemetry is all wrong or the timing is all wrong. Like, have you ever seen that thing where Abraham Lincoln, they, they do the thing between all the coincidences between Abraham Lincoln's assassination and John F. Kennedy's? No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's like, it's amazing. Like, you know, his secretary's last name was John, you know, Marinovich. And so was Lincoln's, like all these crazy things. But of course, like, if if you reinterpret that same data, you go like, ah, it was her last name. It was her middle name. Like it was, the, you know, and, and you sort of go, it's, there are some really crazy coincidences that happen in the universe, but like they have to happen. There's so many things going on. And so if 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 it's, the fact that you can give me an anecdote where you go like, how could she have possibly known that information in no way convinces me that there isn't a logical explanation for that or that it isn't just like people say crazy shit when they wake up all the time and like 99.9% .9 of the time it, it doesn't line up with anything. And once in a while, a person says something that lines up with a reality that they couldn't otherwise have known and you just go like, wow. That's remarkable, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, again, that's that's an interpretation. Right, exactly. You, you know, the person that wins the lottery, for them, they go like, it's a miracle. Can you believe it? It's a one in a trillion shot. But you know, like if a trillion people buy tickets, one of them's going to win. So from, the pers from that person's perspective, it's amazing. But from the perspective of mathematics, it had to happen. Right, and I guess what I'm saying is that there are lots of very intelligent academics that are looking at many, many, many cases, and they're seeing patterns that they can't explain. And this is, again, like the University of Virginia, the Division of Perceptual Studies, they're looking at near-death experiences, and they're seeing you know, people in these cardiac arrest states that are having some of these verified memories that they can't explain through physiology. So and I'm, I'm glad, And I'm glad they're studying that stuff, because like, I think you, if you only study the stuff that like seems likely to yield a logical explanation, you're never going to get some of the really important stuff that we've gotten over the, over the years. 
You know, like people have to explore these improbable, you know, explanations because every now and then one of them is actually the truth or one of them leads to the truth. Um, so I, like, I'm glad they're studying that stuff and I don't think they're stupid or crazy for studying it. I'm just, I'm just saying like, my suspicion is, is that at the end of the day, it'll have a physical, it'll have a physical explanation. And, and you're right that you go like, that's just cause that's, that's just the way you're wired, bro. And I'm right. yeah, so, guilty, guilty as charged. Not guilty as charged. That's just totally reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, the other thing is you, 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 pro, you obviously weren't raised or up around enough evangelical Christians because when I'm reading your book and you're saying like a, a PhD at Princeton says this and the U S government does this. And like eminent scientists say this eminent scientists for years have told us that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that God will condemn all sinners to everlasting suffering and torment if they do not accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior before they die. Like, and like, Lots of scientists who were staunch atheists right at the end of their lives, like accept faith. And then like Billy Graham puts them, puts their quote in a book or somebody like, so the idea that like super smart people who have won Nobel prizes say stuff like that alone does not convince me that's true because I've been around a lot of super smart Christians throughout my life. So I hear you on that, but I, I think the reason that in most cases I'm quoting them or citing them is that they're looking at scientific research and they're using their scientific minds to evaluate the evidence and concluding something. So just to me, that is significant. And it is it is significant. Like to me, at the end of the day, if somebody said to me, so you had that conversation with Mark Gober, you think he's a nut, right? And I would go like, no, I mean, like, I think he should pursue that idea. I don't think it will ultimately be fruitful, but like, he finds it compelling and there's enough evidence there to keep poking around. Like it, it wouldn't be worth my time because I'm not excited about it. Like if, if, if it turns out to be true, I will accept it grudgingly and miserably. And I'll be like, shit, you, you've just proved that I've wasted most of my life. Um, like I'll be pissed if you're right. Um, Which I think is one reason that there is resistance. To of stuff. course. I can understand that personally. It was not easy for me. Yeah, we got a lot invested. I got a lot invested in being a materialist, right? I have a whole podcast based on being a really nice materialist. Um, like <laughs> the, my show is over if you're right. But like if somebody said like, is he an idiot for, for, for pursuing these ideas? I would go like, no, he's an adventurer. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of social evidence there's a lot of social pressure to suggest that the answers will be found down this one road and he's going to go down that other road and most people wouldn't do that so like <laughs> i'm glad for you to go down that road like you couldn't convince me to 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 do it like it would just it would feel and and i, I wouldn't do it in good faith i think there's as much evidence for you to be a consciousness came firstist as there is for my father to be an evangelical Christian. And I don't think either one of you are stupid. Yeah. So there. Just different of opinions. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came on the show? So that in the end, Bart Campolo, who knows nothing, could say to you, I don't think you're stupid. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. I think we're both just looking at things differently and that's totally cool. And so, I mean, the analogy that, that, that you use at one point is the one that says, I think that my brain it's not disconnected from, but like, it's more like a radio receiver than it is a generator of the signal. Right. A receiver, a transmitter, 
or a filtering mechanism where there's a broader reality that our brain is actually filtering and limiting what we perceive, more of that kind of a function rather than being the generator or the producer of consciousness. And how, if you really believe that, how does that affect your everyday life? Well, ultimately, it, it gets to this question of meaning that we talked about much earlier, which is that my view of the materialist perspective was and still is that it's any meaning that one creates is a rationalization. And that's what I thought I, was, I used to do. And now this idea that consciousness is beyond the body and not tied to the body suggests that consciousness continues when the body is not functioning anymore. So that alone, to me, created a new sense of meaning in life. But th this notion of interconnectivity that I discuss in the book, the idea that we're interconnected as part of the same stream of consciousness, or as Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. And that's the idea that, that to me, the, the various pieces of evidence point to. And that has, if, if you buy into that, if you buy into that, it has big implications for how we think about treating one another if we're not as separate as we appear to be as our eyes show us. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about that because I think I'm really comfortable in recognizing that we're all contingent on each other, that, that we're all connected to each other, that our destinies are all wrapped up in each other. But that's such a different thing than sort of suggesting that we are literally all part of one consciousness. Or maybe it's not because like, my, you know, my son always goes like, if we're all part of the universe, then like there's this one thing and we're all part of it. So like there's one thing and we're all part of it. So maybe it's not that different, but I feel really different from you. Right. I mean, that's what our everyday common sense perceptions show us. But I don't think that, that our everyday common sense perceptions necessarily tell us exactly what reality is. I mean, we can look at the quantum world as one example where things are happening at a microscopic scale that don't make any sense, but they are actually real. So to me, it's not about whether something is, is making sense in that way or whether I like it or not. It's just I have a hard time shooting down all the different pieces of evidence that point in this direction. And then just another one that has been very impactful for me is looking at the U.S. government's program that was run for over 20 years, where over $20 million were invested on this phenomenon of remote viewing, which is the alleged ability to perceive something when you're not there physically. And the CIA has declassified documents that say very explicitly, which I include in the book, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. And they show the scientific panel that looked at it, and they say that the implications are revolutionary, and the evidence is too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. So uh, when I See, and, and and like on that, I'm not I'm not even going to argue with you. I'm right. going to go. I'm going to go. Like one of two things is true. First of all, like I've been around a lot of anecdotal evidence or a lot of you know a money invested. Like I've been around million dollar churches. You know, like right. where people have invested lives and money and all sorts of technology into like concepts of reality that I still think are false after all that investment is made. But I'm even going to go with you. Like I go like remote, remote viewing, like maybe that's a thing, right? Right. The only difference between you and I is I'm going to go like, yeah, our brains can do stuff that we didn't even understand. Like the physical universe has layers that I don't perceive you know and, and i mean i read that same i mean you there's this great quote that you have in your book from this uh guy from 
UC Irvine, Donald Hoffman. Yes. And, and where he talks about how our perceptions of reality were not evolved to help us understand reality. They were evolved to help us survive. And, and so we only take in the parts of reality that help us to survive. That's why different organisms are really sensitive to different kinds of sounds or different kinds of smells or different, you know, different ranges of light. The universe didn't endow you with this so that you could have a sweeping and comprehensive view. It was like you organism, the organisms that live are the ones that focus on, on perceiving that narrow bandwidth of reality that they, that, that's most important to them. Right. And so he ends up saying, if you have an organism that sees reality as it is and is competing with an organism that sees none of reality, but is only tuned to the fitness consequences in its environment, then the organism that sees reality as it is can never win. Right. Evolution does not save, shape perceptual systems to see reality as it is. It shapes our perceptual systems simply to keep us alive long enough to have kids. Right. And I go like, okay, so when, when, when somebody tells me about this, uh, what was it, uh, the, the CIA thing, the uh, non- Remote viewing. Remote viewing, yeah. I believe that may be a thing that I don't perceive on a regular basis because you know, up to this point in my species history, it wasn't important to understand it. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying like, it has a natural explanation. Right. And it's where, where I come out on that, I guess, is that it's, it's difficult, I think, to come up with a, with a traditional explanation based on the conventional view of consciousness, which is that it's, it's stuck inside of us. And here we have something that's happening, happening non-locally, both in terms of space and time. Now, you know, I would go with that if I felt like if, there was, if I had any sense that, that you had exhausted the possibilities of the brain, like that if, if you're like, dude, we have a fairly comprehensive understanding of how the brain works and we know which synapses do which things. We, we, we really know this thing. And like, there's like, within, like, you know, we know the brain as well as, you know, your bicycle. And I go like, yeah, my bicycle only has a few moving parts. Like, so there are certain things where you go like your bicycle made a beautiful song. And I go like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> there's no way those parts can't make a beautiful song. I have no idea the depths of the brain and I don't feel like anybody does. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's a lot we don't know about the brain. I don't think we can know anything for sure. Uh, but again, to me, it's the confluence of these pieces that to me make the most sense if we shift the view of consciousness. And, and one other point, which is more of like a, just a philosophical one that I, I reference a few times is the only thing that we can know for sure or verify is something that we experience. Right. So if if we said if we took that to a much broader perspective and said we have a universe and there's no consciousness there, which is the conventional materialist view, which is that the universe started with no consciousness. And then you have random chemical reactions that end up forming DNA, which leads to a, the evolution of a, a human being and other species. The human develops a brain and then consciousness comes out. So consciousness came after this material universe. So if we just think about it like philosophically and experientially, it says that there was a universe before that there was any consciousness. However, we require a consciousness in order to verify the existence of anything. Even in empirical studies, there has to be a consciousness there to experience it. So to say that matter preceded consciousness is certainly possible, but it is by definition unverifiable. 
So to postulate that there is something outside of consciousness requires a leap of faith that it existed. And this is why Albert Einstein, who was a very strict materialist, he acknowledged this point and said, look, I cannot uh, prove that my conception is right, but that is my religion, that there's this leap of faith that consciousness could precede matter. So th- just philosophically, the, the most skeptical position is this one that starts with consciousness, because anything outside of consciousness just can never be verified. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a ton of leaps of faith. You know, we all got to leap somewhere. Right. I mean, e- you know, even just the idea that like we're, we're not all part of a simulation in somebody else's, you know, brain or, you know, that, 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 that there's some sense in which, yeah, Einstein was right. I mean, I guess you could call it a leap of faith or you just call it a working hypothesis where you say, it's like, let's act as though it works this way and see if that provides a good prediction. You know, like if we can predict things based on this hypothesis and if it holds. And that's that's the weird thing. It's like, it feels like 99.9% of the time that it holds. And, 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 and the other 1% of the time it feels like it might just be like not like we haven't figured it out yet. So I mean, if, if your 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 consciousness is somebody else's is somebody else's god. I hear you, but I think it is important to acknowledge that that the materialist perspective, which I know very well from personal experience, is is one that that demands proof and evidence and double blind studies, and yet the fundamental assumption, which is that there was a material universe before consciousness, is unverifiable. Yeah, it's like I said it, to me. Anything that anything before the Big Bang is you're just hypothesizing, you know. And and so, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that gets you back to the Big Bang, but like before that, you're out of luck, right? So, do you feel like you're a better person for thinking this way? Like, not not that you're better than other people, but I mean, do you feel like thinking this way? has led you to be more, you know, like kind. So this is, this will be my question for you because the, the term better really, what does better mean from the materialist perspective? What is better? I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I would have said is better. Does anything actually matter beyond what? Do I'm, you know? Do you know? Um, okay. When you were materialist, you didn't know. Do you know now? What do you think is better? Now? I, I mean, I can't say for sure. I think we can, if we take the near-death experience as being not a hallucination, and I, I discuss studies in the book on that, like Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who wrote a study in the Lancet Journal and some others, which suggests that maybe this near-death experience thing is not just a hallucination, but rather it's another example of an unlocking of the filter, sort of like psychedelics, where the brain has certain reductions in activity. We then experience an enriched consciousness. Maybe the near-death experience is that. And if that's true, then what we learn from people's experiences there and in other similar types of things, that might give us hints into what is better or not. So that's how I would start the answer. And there seems to be this theme of treating others well because we're connected as part of the same consciousness. That seems to be preferred at a cosmic scale, whatever you want to call it. Um, So I think I'm just much more aware of that than I was before. I certainly didn't like to mistreat people before, but again, I just thought things didn't have meaning, even though I wanted to treat people well. And now I think there might be deeper meaning behind that. Okay. I mean, cause you know that like, I would say from a materialist perspective, um, I would say that you get to wanting to treat people well 
because wanting to treat people well on some level naturally selects. And like ultimately the one thing all living things have in common is that they want to keep living and that they want to propagate their life forward. All the ones that don't want to keep living and propagate their lives forward, they're gone. And so, and so on some level, everything flows out of our instinct, you know, like our instinct to survive and that goodness and love end up being things that we prefer because they're good for us. It's certainly a hypothesis. And it could be a contributor and it could be that there's that plus something more cosmic or maybe you're right. Uh, I guess just to me, from what I've seen, I think there's something bigger than the material world. Um, yeah. I know. It's funny. I, I yeah. can't like you have no idea how many emails I'm going to get from my friends who listen to this podcast who are going to just go like, you suck, Bart. Like you, like you should have nailed that guy. Or like, like, why couldn't you pin him? And, and they always say the same thing. Like, like I always try to, I always end up, and it's not like I try to, I always end up finding some commonality with the people I talk to. Um, even when I think they're completely wrong because there's, because they're human beings and there's always something where I go like, I get that. That makes sense to me. And so I'm frustrated because I'm like, I'm, I don't feel, you know, probably people are going to be like, wow, he, he really let that guy off the hook. Um, and, you know, from, from my, you know, from my perspective. Right, right. Um, and it's not that. It's, it's like, you know, my experience with people of faith, and I mean, you just sound to me like another person of faith, is that, you know, first of all, I can't prove anything um, once you get back there to, the, you know, I can prove a lot of things within my system, but I can't prove the, you know, like that I'm not in the matrix. And so, and so in the end, I never end up trying to undermine anybody's faith. Um, my, my question is always like, how's that working for you? Yeah, I guess you that's know? what really matters in the end because people can yeah. have whatever feelings they want. To me, it's, I think we're just interpreting data differently is that I look at this body of evidence and I say the more likely conclusion is X and you're saying it's Y and that's totally fair. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you've probably talked to a lot of people, right? You just wrote a book. People talk to you about it. Has this conversation been any different from every other conversation you have? Like, did I bring you anything different in terms of angle or perspective or no i mean or, I've, I've heard all of these arguments before different points of view um so i wouldn't say it's different but i think you bring a very valuable perspective so i'm glad you had me on the show thank you for having me and it's important to acknowledge all sides of this it's there's a lot that we don't know and i think we just come out on different sides in terms of how we look at the evidence yeah yeah Hey, it is. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show. All right. That was me and Mark Gober. And what do you think? Do you think you're a, you're a radio tuning into the higher consciousness of the universe? Or are you just a boring, staid materialist like me? It's funny. I keep seeing articles at which people are like, Oh, he's just a materialist or like, you know, the ridiculousness of materialism. And I'm thinking like, I guess materialism, because it has become to, in our culture, to mean you're into things and you want to buy Gucci and that kind of thing. Materialism has got, I, I always am choosing identities that have bad connotations, like atheist. I had to, I can't call myself an atheist because you know what that means. And uh, now I feel like I can't call myself a materialist. Um, even though that's kind of what I am. 
I guess I'm, this this idea of calling myself a, a humanist is is sounding better and better, um, because humanist or secular humanist, I guess I gotta I gotta qualify that. But at least if you call yourself a secular humanist, people know you're not you're a materialist, but they don't you don't have to get called that, and they know you're an atheist, but you don't have to get called that, and they know you're a nice guy or a nice woman or a nice somebody, a nice person, and uh, it's all it's all right there. Secular humanist, religious naturalist. Um, sweet person. There you go. Sweet person. All right, you sweet people. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.